0: Well, have you ever been asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? And have you ever tried to answer that? What what makes someone a Christian? What makes you a Christian? How would you answer, if that was directly asked of you, what makes you a believer? In the summer of 2006, I worked as an intern in an office in D.C. that had phases of intensity and then phases of complete boredom. Uh, And during those boredom weeks, uh, because I was an intern, I got pawned off to other offices to literally just answer the phone or go get coffee for other higher-ups. And one week, my job was just to answer a phone in what was called room one, meaning it was the very bottom of the very bottom of the basement. There were no windows. There was only one door, and it was room one. And I was asked to just answer calls, and no one calls room one. So on a Tuesday of this week, I brought a book uh, that my grandma had mailed me a couple of weeks before, sent me a copy titled, God Loves You by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, She said in the front flap that Spurgeon was her favorite writer, and she wanted me to read him. I'd heard of Charles Spurgeon faintly. I knew him mostly as a historical component of the Christian faith. I, I knew that he was important and blah, 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 but this was a perfect occasion to satisfy Grandma. So I was reading at this desk, right by the doorway, right by the hallway, and then someone I had met earlier in the summer walked by, stopped dead in her tracks, looked at me with a straight face, and then walked on. And I thought, well, I'm fired. And then I got an email 20 minutes later from the director of personnel who said, Asher, dot, 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 please come see me in the personnel office. Bring your book. Now I'm really fired. So I was nervous, and right when I sat down, she says, I heard from Rachel that you were reading Charles Spurgeon. I said, yes. Are you a Christian? Yes. What makes you a Christian? (laughs) Oh, man. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I hope that you'll turn to Matthew chapter 15. And if you're new with us, the chapter before us shows Jesus, or the the chapter just before this passage had had shown Jesus feed 5,000 people and then him walking on water toward his disciples. And through a series of events, what Matthew is doing throughout these passages, Matthew is demonstrating for his disciples and onlookers and haters, he's demonstrating to different people the very personhood of Jesus. What makes Jesus Jesus as a man? But also, who is Jesus as God, fully divine? And people are Regularly not understanding him, some are following him, but some are just going. I have no idea what you're talking about. Some are though rejecting him, which is what this series in Matthew 14 and 15 and on through 16. Matthew has given us eight accounts of Jesus being rejected in some uh, some way, some fashion, and today is no different, where people are showing themselves to reject Jesus altogether. Today's passage, you'll see Christ not only being rejected, also misunderstood, but also he is opposed. By very powerful social influencers called Pharisees and scribes. We'll get into them in a little bit. But there was, which I want you to understand there was controversy surrounding Jesus all the time. And for a lot of reasons. But one culturally alarming thing is Jesus and his disciples were not living according to what would later be known as man-made rules. All right, so they were judged by others for not living according to these rules man-made rules. And I think this passage is massively important because it helps us more clearly understand what makes someone a believer in Jesus. I mean, have you ever thought about that? Sometimes you might think about that in fear. What, What makes me a believer in Jesus? Do I believe in Jesus? One of the culturally alarming things, though, is that he was regularly attacked. And and one of the things that this passage will do is it will show kind of the hectic nature of him being opposed. This is honestly a hectic passage. And I mean, it's hard to read this passage, through, uh, it's hard to read this passage without our presuppositions kind of overtaking this. So this morning in my Sunday school class, we talked about how we often have a tendency to have a framework of who God is or a framework of how our lives are and actually impose that on the text. So you're going to read words in this passage like a Pharisee, and you're going to be looking around going, who here is a Pharisee? That guy's a Pharisee. That girl's a Pharisee. Who here is a bad elder? Or what does it mean to have man-made rules? I just want want you to take all the frameworks that you might have off the table and just read this text for what it is. But it's hectic in the meantime, because there's a lot going on here, and there's a lot of redemptive history unfolding before us. Now, if you're here today and you panic when you think about your own faith just causes a lot of chaos in your own heart when you think about what you believe or your own faith. I hope that you will give yourself, uh, or often you might give yourself, a lot of spiritual to-dos to feel secure. I don't know what I believe, but man, if I pray like 50 times today, if I read the Bible not just in a year, but like four times in a year, okay, that I'm off on a good start. But I hope that you will see how Jesus speaks to the weighty rules that you may be piling on yourself that God has not. Uh, Maybe you're here today and you're listening and you'd answer what makes you a Christian with a happy set of productive, accomplished list of things that you've done to please God. I I say what makes you a Christian and you just rattle off everything that you've ever accomplished. I, I hope that you will sit under what Jesus says About what it means to follow Him. Like people in the Bible, we all have a tendency toward making good attempts at justifying God's love for us. We don't don't very often believe it, and so we'll try to justify it in our own man made ways. We'll keep doing stuff in order that we will think we will please Him. But when we make up traditions, which we'll get into in a little bit, or rituals, which we'll get into a little bit, or patterns outside of how God has already directed us to enjoy his goodness. If we keep making up traditions or rituals outside of what he's already given us, we actually turn the whole faith upside down. We take what was given to us in grace, and now we make it about us all together. So I want you to place yourself in the tension of this text. Look around, if you will, and notice where these forces that were stirring in Israel's culture were coming from, that were tempting Israel to reject its scriptural commands in favor of new, uh, tightly fitted traditions. Then and there, a group of well meaning men known to us as Pharisees and scribes who made up and held others to these practices and patterns that God never gave them, and it caused this religious sect to turn over. So, In God's Word, I hope you'll see the the clear rebuke and teaching of Christ, where God's rules are pure and man's rules are distracting, where when Jesus is confronted by these man-made rules, he actually comes back at them with the very rules that they should have followed altogether. So I I hope you'll see this in a couple of ways as the narrative unfolds for us. So if you're using an outline that would be provided in the bulletin, uh, I'm now at point one. Where I hope you will see Jesus being confronted, but also Jesus in turn confronts the Pharisees' rituals. Look at verse 1 and 2 of the passage. Because there you'll see how the Pharisees view their own traditions. They're so proud of them, these traditions that they've made up, that they are going to great lengths. They're coming from Jerusalem to where Jesus was in a different part of Galilee in order to confront Jesus altogether. That's how much they trusted in these traditions. They came all the way from Jerusalem to attack him. Now, these were not local Pharisees and scribes. These would have been people far away, but very high up in power. They found Jesus, think of it, as he was ministering to God's people, and they wanted to abruptly stop him from doing what he was doing. And at this point, Jesus was more widely known and more widely followed than ever before. So what they see in their own minds is that we have a growing problem, and we need to put a stop to it. His teaching was, and and here's why they had to put a stop to it in their own minds his teaching was contradicting the the rules and the regulations of the rabbis. Uh, He was this traveling preacher who was actually saying, You've heard it said here, but let me tell you what God actually wants you to do. These guys were adding to the scriptures in what they thought were helpful rules to help people follow the Lord, but. And they would have been well-versed in theology. They would have been well-versed in the scriptures of the Old Testament. They, they, you think about like a library, they had a library. You know, you think about all the, all the software like Logos and all that, they had all that. They were well-versed in this. But Jesus wasn't following what their books were saying. And look at how they accuse him. Look at, look at verse 2, the second part of verse 2. Well, verse 2 altogether, why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Or to put it another way, you allow, they're talking to Jesus here, you allow your disciples to boldly, openly neglect the tradition of the elders. And they give an example of this, that they're allowing Jesus to understand what they're actually talking about, as if Jesus didn't already understand what they were talking about. They said, our rules have people washing hands in a certain way, but your disciples aren't ceremonially washing their hands at all. They're breaking our tradition, and you're supposed to be one of us. You're known as a rabbi and one of us. Why are you allowing your people to break these rules that we hold so dearly? And this is a serious charge. You may think about this and go, isn't, we're just talking about washing hands. This was a huge thing to them, and here's why. This wasn't just Jesus and his posse who weren't hygienic. These policies and traditions of the elders, they were uh, some of the requirements based out of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. One of these requirements is if you're around someone who is unclean, like you touch, so this is the Old Testament, if you touch someone who is unclean or you eat something that has been declared unclean, you have to go through a ceremonial rite or a ceremonial ritual before then you can go and worship God in righteousness and holiness. So if you've messed up, you, you, we've all heard it's Mother's Day, so sorry to bash on mom, We've all heard, you need to clean yourself up before you go to church, right? You need to clean yourself up before you go talk to so-and-so. That, that's the understanding of that. You've messed up and now let God purify you through this ritual. Well, the, or the, the scribes and the elders had made up alongside that various rules of, hey, if you, it's not just if you've touched something unclean, but if you walk down the wrong aisle of Walmart where, where fish might be, you probably need to take a bath in a certain way. Or let's just say, man, I know a lot of you who are farming and ranching, your hands are constantly dirty and used all day long, right? So let's help yourself out. Let's have you wash your hands before every meal. That way, no matter, you know, what tractor you drove or what thing you threw or what hand you shook, no matter what you did, just wash it before breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? I don't know if that's where hand washing came from before, you know, go wash your hands before you eat. I don't know, but that's the kind of thing that they were talking about. And the way that they would dictate how you would wash your hands is you would, you would hold your hands out, uh, you would hold your hands up, and they would pour water on top of your hands so it would go all the way down to your wrist, one, to, one wash, and then you'd hold your hand down, they'd pour water so all of the yuck would actually drip off into a sink or a bowl. So you'd wash your hands like that. And these guys are saying that is important to God. And you aren't having your people do this. Now, as societies grew and places became more urban, the chances increased of you being around someone unclean. So this became a regular process. You bump into the wrong person, you go down the wrong aisle, and boom, like it or not, you're defiled. And the role of these ceremonial laws is God is so pure that when you worship Him, you ought to have a sense of reverence and awe that nothing about you ought to be impure. So you can, see, you can see the right motive in this, right? You can see the right motive in why God gave his word like this. I am holy, you are not. You need, to, you need to wash yourself up before you come into my presence. And they would say, not only do I need to wash myself up before coming into your presence, I need to wash myself up all the time. And Jesus wasn't doing it. The disciples weren't doing that. And so the Pharisees were saying, Jesus, you are undercutting the authority of the elders. You can see how intense this is. Now you need to know who some of these people were, these Pharisees and scribes. Who are operating within this tradition. The scribes, think of them like a political religious party. Think of them like a political religious party within the religious organization of Israel. They pride in themselves on separating themselves on being different than than the common society and culture. Right? Good attempt. It was, it was a time of growing atheism and, and growth of other uh, religions, and they wanted to avoid it completely. They wanted their group to be very pure. They only wanted to worship God how God had dictated him to be worshiped. And then historically, within the attempt to keep culture from infecting their own faith, they added stipulations to God's commands. Their attempts were to protect the authority of the word, so they created what you and I might say policies So if they had the bylaws, you know, the Old Testament, they created these policies or case studies that would go in it. However, over time, these policies or case studies actually started equating to the authority of the Scriptures. And in many cases, they actually outweighed the authority of the Scriptures. There is actually, in one of the Jewish commentaries, there is actually a phrase that says, "...the things held by the elders are more authoritative than the things that were given from God." Pretty courageous, isn't it? So that's who we're dealing with when we're talking about the Pharisees. That's who's confronting Jesus. Another category here are the scribes. Most Pharisees came from a group called the scribes. So these men originally were scribes of the government. You might think of people who work in city hall, copying down uh, different rules and regulations, making sure that things are going According to Bland, they copied and kept track of the laws and ordinances. But after a period of Israel not having a king, the the scribes actually switched their roles uh, and began scribing for the religious authorities in Israel on behalf of the rabbis. So they they used to work for, you might think, the city government, and now they're actually working for, you might say, local churches. After a period of time, you could see how this kind of got out of control. And so the scribes in Scripture are the ones who then taught the law and write down the ordinances of the teachings of the rabbis. These were widely influential people because in, a, in an illiterate age and when, uh, an age where there wasn't readily available um, parchment paper or copies of the Bible, these guys were seen as authoritative because they actually had the copy of the scriptures altogether. And so these two groups combining, one with authority and one with teaching ability, they started instructing in wide mass people on what was in the scriptures and also what is called the oral tradition or what was handed down. Now, the tradition here, what's that? Third category, we're almost done with this point, not the whole thing. The tradition were the teachings of the Pharisees about the scriptures. So, you might think of it like a binding commentary on a book of the Bible. You might have a commentary at home. I have a ton of commentaries in my office. These are, these are thoughts that are uninspired about books that were inspired. And the regular thing That you might fall into a trap in is like, well, so and so says this about the Bible, so I believe what he says, rather than, well, what does the Bible actually say? These these commentaries that these Pharisees were teaching, they were bound together and they became the regular teaching of the religious era. So the Pharisees, these teachings about the Scripture were so valuable. The danger here, obviously, the danger of the uh, of this was that the teaching was placed on the same level as the word, or you have tradition now equaling scripture, or ritual, now equaling religion. So this tradition often went beyond what the law of God said and in the wrong direction. It not only said more than God's word, but it actually took a person who obeyed it in a direction of denying what God's word actually said altogether. You can imagine something very valuable, like a house. And then you want to protect that house to such a degree that you constantly put hedges around it, or even like a giant dome over it. To the point where you can't even enjoy the house altogether. Already you can see what this means or how you and I can apply it from this passage. Give the scribes and Pharisees the benefit of the doubt. They intended to live righteously. They wanted to love the law so much that they kept putting boundaries further back from it. They were building walls around their world for what they thought was for their protection. Nevertheless, on the outset, all the way back for when they started doing this, they were actually doubting the power of the word of God given to his people. So a call from this text to you and me is for us to trust and submit ourselves to the authority of God's pure word. You can think of it as having a line in the sand with a plus mark on top and a minus part on bottom. You don't want to go, you don't want to add to the Scriptures. You don't want to go to above it. You also don't want to take away from the Scriptures altogether. Because what this text teaches is you actually void Scripture altogether. And in this case, these guys were adding to Scripture. And when you add to Scripture, even if you think it's for your good, you're actually taking away the power from it altogether. So I read one guy say this last week, never in the New Testament... Will you find Jesus accusing the Pharisees or the scribes or the Sadducees or any other party in Israel as caring too much about the word of God? They always distrusted it a little bit to where they either needed to take away from it, and you and I can see how culturally dangerous that is. It's very common in our day and age to to just kind of box out some parts of the scriptures that make us feel uncomfortable. Or in this case, they were adding to it because they didn't think it went far enough and out of protection of us all, we need to... Set more rules and regulations versus what God has given us in full. They always take away from the authority of God's word through man made traditions. So, this is the first thing that I hope you'll see the beginning of Jesus confronting man made rituals by how is Jesus confronting the Pharisees? (laughs) He's ignoring them altogether. He's ignoring what their man-made rules are. He's confronting them by ignoring what they say. So he confronts their ways by ignoring their rules. But but second then for us, secondly, if you're following along, second for us and others, he then not only confronts them, but then he critiques their rules altogether. Gaze at verses 3 through 9. This is Jesus replying to the accusation. This is his critique. They ask him a question, he gives them an answer. He uses a phrase that perfectly parallels the, the charge that they threw at him and his disciples. He's using their language on their plane in order to topple them. Look at verse 2. What's the question there? Why do your disciples break the tradition of elders? How does he respond in verse 3? Why do you break the commandment of God? Woo. They gave the examples of hand washing. So he comes back with, why do you break God's rules for your own, own tradition? You're breaking God's rules for this handmade tradition that you say is keeping you clean. The Pharisees attacked Jesus by coming after his disciples. But look at how Jesus responds to their accusation. He goes after them. They say, hey, you're unholy because you're following the rules. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 4. You're treading very uncarefully because you're not obeying God's rules altogether. I'm saying you're wrong at the root of the issue. Look at at verse 4 and what it says. For God commanded, honor your father and mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Man's rituals is now having a battle royale versus God's own religion. He's saying by adding to Scripture... By adding possibly good policies to Scripture and holding other people accountable to your additions, you're actually breaking the commands of God altogether. And look at how he does this. Look at verse 4. Christ quotes here the fifth commandment. Uh, He's quoting here from Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Christ then quotes in uh, verse 5, he then quotes from their tradition. So he quotes his word and then he quotes their word. He knew their word. He then turns the tradition against them. He then turns the word against them. How does he do this? Pharisees have either invented or endorsed what's in your copy of verse 5. This is called the rule of Korban. You can read about this in uh, Mark chapter 7. There were actually the rule of Korban is actually listed there. This, this would have been a name of that policy. It, it means a, a word of giving or a word of giving or a rule of giving. God's command is that we honor our parents as long as they live. We're to honor our parents as long as they live. And part of what it looks like to honor your parents is what many of you today do on a regular basis. When your parent is in need, who are you not to help them first? Maybe they need physical help. Maybe they need financial help. Maybe they need emotional help. Maybe you are the one that they need to lean on after you leaning on them for so long. And you, in honoring your father and mother, are commanded by God to to look up at the parental figure that God has given you and say, whatever you need as your son, I will will help with. When Brooke and I lived in New Mexico, um, I don't know if it's cultural or... Uh, well, obviously, it's cultural. There are these houses in front of houses called casitas, right? So you might build a normal house, and then you might build what is called, I think, in the Midwest, a mother-in-law apartment, right? Where no matter what happens, if your mom needs a place to stay, she gets to move in with you. And the language there is gets to, not has to, right? Now, I think it's interesting that, that not only they don't place her in the backyard, place her in the front yard, but they do separate it from the household, Right? This is why Brooke and I moved away from New Mexico. Just we I'm kidding. My mom there. <laughs> what's mine is yours and what's yours is mine. All right. Now, there's an exception to this rule though. Honoring your father and mother, the the man-made rule that Jesus is now talking about in verse 5, there's an exception to this rule. It's called the law of kurban. It's bizarre, and in reality, it's actually a very sinister rule. Here's what here's what it is. If your parents are in need of of something that is yours, whether that's furniture, whether that's money, whether that's your car or another kind of resource, or maybe it's even their physical help. They need it. They've expressed it to it. Imagine how difficult that would be. You could declare whatever they ask for. Let's just use a couch. They say, man, our our house just burnt down. Can we borrow your couch so we can sleep on it? You go, well, actually, mom, law of kurban. that's dedicated to God here. And then they can't have it. Now, God didn't make up that rule, and you can see how sinister that is. Hey, can you, you know, your dad's out of town. Can you come take me to the doctor? I'm not driving right now. And it's like, well, mom, my car is for ministry, you know, so I can't. I'm not going to help you with it. And what he's saying is you have voided God's law altogether. If you claim something for God on your own, then whatever they needed could be legally and ethically withheld from your parents, uh, whether it's taking... Uh, A parent to the doctor, well, the problem is your truck is for ministry, sorry. Or, hey, son, I'm in between jobs. Can we come eat dinner at your house? Sorry, dad, the table you built and gave for me, now it belongs to a heavenly carpenter. And these were people who were attacking Jesus. Jesus sees their rules and he says, look at verse 7, you hypocrites. This is a critique that Jesus gave them. By inventing practices for the sake of holiness, you have sidestepped the whole point of God's command. By adding to the command, even though you think you are doing yourself good, you have actually voided it altogether. Tradition here is possibly hard for us to look at and understand that this is their view of tradition. It's hard for us to look at because you and I use tradition in a different way than it's talked about here. A tradition is typically something you like or look forward to. Tailgating on a Saturday, leaving cookies out for Santa. Going to church as a big family on Mother's Day. But tradition in this case is actually not something you do out of love. Tradition in this case was something you followed out of fear or a way to sidestep your obligations. It's a loophole in the contract that God has given you. By their traditions, they made what came to them from God null and void. By adding to God's word, you have taken away from God's word altogether. And Jesus isn't saying here, you guys are just too old-fashioned with your tradition. Or you guys care too much about the Bible. You're just being too literal. That's why my guys don't wash their hands in this way. You guys are just old school. No, in many ways, Jesus is saying, you are not old school enough. Go back before you made up these rules and see the rules that came from me. Look at verse 8. Here, Jesus tells them that they're not just wrong, not just that they're sinning, but he goes on to illustrate why they're doing what they're doing. He quotes here from Isaiah. Look at verse 8 of this text. The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hey, Jesus, you're not following the rules of the elders. His response is your heart is far from me and vain, says in verse 9, do you worship me? Three massive strikes here against them. They added to scripture, strike one. They've reviled their parents, strike two. And oh, by the way, you have rotten hearts. Isaiah prophesied something terrible that would happen to the Israelites where they would finally turn their backs on God and Jesus saying, hey, he's talking about you. You've turned your back on me. You have flattery lips, but a desolate heart. You think you worship me with your new rules, but it's all for nothing. Now, friends, I wonder, as an aside, if, if this gives you a clearer picture of Jesus. Look at, look at how he is being portrayed to us in the Gospel of Matthew. Strong, wise, confrontive of sin, honoring his own father's word. On a regular and weekly basis, the man we sing of, the man we pray to, the man we have faith in, the man we trust in for our full lives. Look at how he's here defending his disciples with God's word. Look at how he's defending his father with his father's word, with his own truth. This gives us another glimpse of what he was on earth to do. He he comes for this heart according to how his father commanded it. I just love it. So our passage moves from this confrontation to a rebuke. And now, thirdly, Jesus gives us an explanation or a clarification as if we weren't understanding of what he's talking about of this uh, righteous religion. Look at, look at uh, verses 10 and 11. Jesus here clarifies or explains true purity and righteousness. There's, there's a shift. If you think about, think about uh, narratives and scripture as like a, like a movie, here now is a shift in camera angle. They are now speaking, or the, these Pharisees and scribes started speaking to Jesus Jesus then abruptly speaks back to them, but now he turns to the entire crowd and says at the end of verse 10, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Now friends, this is Jesus telling you about the nature of true holiness. You are who you are, not because you follow a ritual or say that phrase, but because a heart is either dead or made alive by God. It's what he emphatically says. He effectively says to the crowd, don't listen to these guys, which would have been shocking to the Pharisees and scribes, because they would say, that's kind of our niche, is we're listened to. And through the explicit truth that they should have known and written down again and again, he says that your hearts, he's quoting here from the Old Testament, he says that your hearts shows your faith more than your hands or actions ever could. Your hearts actually show your faith more than your actions or hands ever could. Now, this passage is so unique. You have to kind of take a step back a little bit and go, okay, there's a lot more going on here than just on the surface. There's a lot of gospel in the sky as well as truth on the ground here. This is is a unique operation of what Jesus is doing within the realm of what's called redemptive history. So redemptive history, think about creation Fall, redemption, consummation. We are almost to uh, the redemption portion. We're in the middle of, you could say, the, the fall and redemptive portion where Jesus is demonstrating. He's given a testimony of what he's about to do on the cross. But here he is describing for us in full color of what it means to actually be a follower of him. It's not with the things that we do with our hands, it's not the actions that we might take, it's not the phrases that we say, but he is saying, like it's been said in old. Your heart, which cannot be attacked from the mouth, through food, unclean food, actually demonstrates who you are. The gospel of Mark gives a little more color to this story in Mark 7, Uh, though we have enough to understand here in Matthew 15. Mark records these words of Jesus, and then he also pins that by doing this, Jesus, by teaching this, declares that all foods are now clean, as the ceremonial law will find its fulfillment in the full sacrifice of himself. They, they won't understand it then. And that's kind of what Mark is saying. You won't understand it here, but you'll get a final picture when Jesus is crucified on the cross. That, that they were, in many ways, escaping torment by being cleaned by God through a ceremony so that they could worship him altogether. And what Jesus is saying, hey, all of that finds its fulfillment in me. It's clean. Eat whatever you want. You're not judged by your hands. You're judged by your heart. Now, this would have totally shocked the scribes and the Pharisees because of their love for ceremonial law. It was the ceremonial laws that God gave his people that were not only for their good, but also a shadow for us. We, we, see, a, we see biblically ceremonial laws as like a, like a shadow casting forward to the cross where God would come to redeem his people by finally purifying their hearts, by actually sacrificing Jesus'. And they wouldn't have understood this to such a degree that they missed out on what was going on and doing. Uh, they were misunderstanding of what this was pointing them toward, and their love for additions to that code, man-made rules that have been passed down by the elders and rabbis decades after decades, only leads them to not only miss what was standing right in front of them, but actually their reject Jesus altogether. Jesus is teaching the crowd that you, that what you are is determined by your heart. Or to put it another way, moral defilement is actually more crucial than ritual defilement. Now, Lord willing, I'll explain a little bit more on this next week as we go through verses 20 out of this chapter. But for our case today, don't miss the details that are on the ground because of so many amazing details in the air. What Jesus is explaining and clarifying is for us. Look at verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. So, what makes you a follower of Jesus? What makes you a Christian? Your heart. It shows you're either in or you're out. It's not something material or superficial or emotional that makes you holy, it's your heart. That's where holiness originates. It's, it's from the inner man, the, the mind. So if you're here and you're not a believer and you don't understand some of these words, like your heart, your heart beats. Like if you don't have a heart, you actually die. How can, a, how can you have a dead heart inside of your body? When we talk about the heart scripturally, we're talking about the inner man, the mind, the will, the whole man, the, the soul. This is where holiness proceeds from. It, it's a holiness that is from the inside out rather than the outside in. They, they had these laws in order to Christianize people from the outside in. I want you to listen to these words of J.C. Ryle, a, a British pastor in the 1800s. He has this wonderful set of questions and answers. What is the first thing that we need in order to be a Christian? A new heart. What is the sacrifice God asks us to bring to Him? A broken and contrite heart. What is the true circumcision? The circumcision of the heart. What is genuine obedience? To obey from the heart. What is saving faith? To believe with the heart. Where ought Christ to dwell? To dwell in our hearts by faith. What is the chief request that wisdom makes to everyone? My son, give God your heart. The Lord Jesus doesn't want merely superficial holiness in his people. He wants a transforming holiness from the outside in, first from the inside out. And this is what he's saying to the Pharisees that's not what you are about. You're about superficial, ceremonial, ritual holiness. The man-made holiness about which is to be done with, but he wants his disciples transformed from the inside out. So Christ here warns the crowd that it's not the things that enter into them that make them unclean. No longer worry about that because I am here and I will make you clean from the inside out. It's what's on the inside that makes us clean. Now, I've got to stop at this point. We'll, we'll pick up on the others uh, or the last point next week, Lord willing, and I'll, get to Christ's lesson for his disciples and Peter's continual question. But in closing, I don't want you to to overlook the the contrast of what the Pharisees and scribes demand versus what God requires. The, The Pharisees say, do this and God will be good to you. Don't do this and you'll be made pure. But as a giant contrast, it's actually Jesus who says you are who you are, not by your ritualistic practice but by your heart. And this is somewhat frightening. You look at that and you go, all right, amen, you know, from the inside out. But if you're honest with yourself, if you examine who your heart actually is, you go, I'm in big trouble. I see what the scripture says about my heart. I'm reminded all the time of what from the inside matters most and what the outside, and I have a wretched heart. This is somewhat frightening to us because of what Jesus says, that our heart shows us who we are. I don't want you to know who I am then we're in a lot of trouble if it's true. The Bible all over the place describes the heart as being rebellious, faulty, deceptive, in debt, a slave to sin, filthy, like a rag, adulterous, lawless, blind, corrupt, and best of all, dead. And the call of Scripture for all of us, the call of Scripture here is for you to seek out the Lord to forgive you of your sin to trust in the sacrificial death that Jesus would eventually go through in the book of Matthew. You may have heard in, in Psalm 51, um, somewhere in there, verse 10, we'll just say, Psalm 51, where the man had sinned so greatly, and what is his great call to God after admitting to sin? God, create in me a new heart. That's the call of this passage, in recognizing if Jesus is right, and he is, that it's what the heart is that makes you who you are, then we must ask Christ To create in us a new heart. Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, I think I said this in October, one of my favorite preachers perfectly has put it that if your testimony, if someone asks you what makes you a Christian, if your testimony of God's saving work starts with anything other than he, you don't understand the gospel. You misunderstand the goodness of God in Christ. You actually are usurping the glory of Christ by His Spirit's powerful, regenerating summons. What makes you a Christian? You might say, well, I've followed this. Well, I've done that. Well, I, I went there. I walked narrowly. I obeyed all these things. Hear Christ's word from the Old Testament. People honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. It was Christ who needed to open your ears so that you could hear It was Christ who needed to remove the scales from your eyes so that you could see and revive your heart so that you could live. Friends, the call of this text is to be honest with yourself. Who are you? And you need someone outside of you to save you from yourself. 16 years ago this summer, my boss's boss's boss saw me reading a book by one of the finest Christian preachers ever to live and asked me, what makes you a Christian? What did I say? Well, she cut me off and didn't allow me to say anything. She piped in and said, whatever you want to say, you need to know that what makes you a Christian is God showed his love for you and that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That's what makes you a Christian. Go and tell. Friends, let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for what your testimony says about you and your glory and your grace and your mercy. We thank you that as we have seen and observed all of the ways that we can understand your purity you purified us by a death of your son god we ask that we would respond in great trust in understanding of what that means for us so that we are not tempted to go after anything but you so that we are not distracted by anything other than you, the object of our faith. Oh God, present yourself to us in a big way, as a big God, as one who loves his little people. Oh Lord, purify us and create in us a new heart so that we may enjoy your glory all the more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.